glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor there shall be any ravenous beast to come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God, even as we read your word, I pray that we might be stunned at the promise of what is to come. That we will obtain joy and gladness. That sin will be undone. And all that will be left for the people of God who dwell with you will be joy. And so, Lord, in the meantime, we pray that you might give each of us eyes to see and ears to hear the glorious truth of your word. Help us to do these things together for your glory and for our joy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. What a great chapter of Scripture. You know, Isaiah is prophesying about the end of all things, what the prophets would often call the day of the Lord. And Israel would look forward to the day of the Lord as this singular event of both great judgment and wrath, as well as great salvation and joy. And what Isaiah is doing, starting in verse in chapter 34, but obviously here in chapter 35, is he's prophesying about the end of all things, and he's showing us something really really important. Look again at verse one. He says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. And we have to remember, why is there wilderness? Why is there desert? Why is there dry and weary land? It's because of sin. Right? God's creation in Genesis chapter one and two was one of abundant flourishing and life, and sin brought about death and destruction. And so what Isaiah is getting after for you and me to understand is there's a day coming when the curse of sin on the world itself will be undone. It will be reversed. And the creation itself will sing for joy. It will rejoice that the curse is being undone. So if we're taking notes this morning in Isaiah 35, the kind of groundwork that we need to lay is this. Joy will overtake those whose God is the Lord. 
Joy will overtake those whose God is the Lord. For those whose God is not the Lord, that day will be one of vengeance and wrath, Isaiah says. But for those whose God is the Lord, they will obtain joy and gladness. The world one day will see God's glory. That's what Isaiah is getting after in the end of verse 2. The curse of sin itself will be reversed and undone. What was marked in our lifetime by death and dryness and dreariness will be replaced with life and singing. Then look at verse 5. In light of all of these cosmic level things going on that Isaiah is talking about, The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Here is the promise of what we might see when that day approaches, Isaiah says. You will see blind people starting to see. You'll see deaf people starting to hear. You'll see lame men starting to leap around like a deer. And we know this happened in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. I mean, think about his earthly ministry. What is he doing? He's going around healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, in a very real sense, undoing the curse of sin. And what is the response of all those who recognize what he has done for them? They respond with joy and worship and praise. And the good news continues. Don't miss the language that we're seeing here. Seeing the mute sing for joy is like waters breaking forth in the wilderness, verse 6. Water doesn't just break forth in the wilderness. It's a desert. So for water to come out of the desert is something miraculous going on, something supernatural going on. When these signs appear, they are witnesses, and we can rejoice for the curse is being undone. And we'll get to more of this in a bit when we get to Luke But the point for now is that the future glorious joy to come at the end has broken into the present through the work of Jesus. That that joy that Isaiah is saying to Israel, you can look forward to this one day when God comes to make all things right in Jesus, we say, and we can enjoy it even now. There are things that we still might have to wait for, but there are some things we don't have to wait for. Look at verse 8. This way, this highway, the way of holiness that the unclean will not pass over, that belongs to those who walk on the way. This is such an encouraging word. The last phrase of this. Even if they are fools, verse 8, they shall not go astray. Even fools who walk in the way of holiness, who walk in the way of the Lord, shall not go astray. In other words, Once you are on the way of the Lord, you can't get off of it. Now, that might not be an encouragement to you, but it's an encouragement for me because I'm a fool. I regularly am longing in my heart to go in other directions after other idols and other desires that would lead me away from the Lord and his word, that would lead me away from holiness. But Isaiah is saying, once you get on this road, you cannot get off. Impossible. 
We can rejoice that once we are on the way, we cannot get off the path. We are all headed all the way to Zion, all the way to the dwelling place of the Lord. And now we know that some of this is still to come. So like, look at verse nine, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. I mean, obviously we still have lions and ravenous beasts. There's still death and destruction in our lifetime. There's still vengeance and violence in our world. But the promise, verse 10, is that the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And I, I actually love one, one thing that may be helpful to you just by way of small application is when you're wanting to study scripture, yes, find you a translation of the Bible. I, I use the English Standard Version. Uh, Pastor Brian uses the ESV as well. There are other fantastic translations of the Bible that are helpful and truthful. And when we're doing a study of scripture, it's, it's sometimes helpful to look at multiple translations to see how some translators might have interpreted certain things in different ways. And one of the things I love about uh, the, the New International Version, if you have the NIV in verse 10, it doesn't say they shall obtain gladness and joy. It says gladness and joy shall overtake them. Now, why do I point that out? Because the idea of obtaining something is in our day, in the way that we use that word, kind of like a, I'm going to, I'm going to earn it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to receive it from my own actions. I'm going to obtain what's mine. But the NIV helps us understand, no, no, no. The, the way that joy and gladness is going to come to the people of God, it's going to overtake them. So, so I don't know about you, but it's Christmas time. And I think we all can think of, a, of an example in our lives when we wake up on the morning of December 25th and we see those presents under the tree or we maybe open up that one gift that we knew we were going to get, that we were hoping and praying and asking Santa and angels and whoever else would come and bring gifts. And when you open up that prize, when you open up that gift, that thing that your heart has longed for, you don't have to stop and consider, I think I should be happy. No, it overtakes you. You can't, you can't hide it. You can't help but show those around you, look at what is here. This, this thing, this thing that I've longed for has come and now my heart leaps for joy because I have got it. I've obtained it. It's come to me and it's overtaken me. That's the idea. When we think of sorrow and sighing being no more, the natural response of a heart that delights in what's before it is automatic joy. What a day that will be. To even think now for just a moment, how sure it is that for those of us in Christ, how inexpressible it will be for us to live in this way. It ought to warm our hearts afresh to the joy that comes as the fruit of the Spirit. This is our future. And this is our present. We get to experience this joy now because we get to experience the one who brings the joy. And that's Jesus.
So turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Brian reference this passage a little bit. And he taught last week on the Magnificat, the response of Mary to the the blessing of Elizabeth. And so his focus was on the Magnificat. His his focus was on Mary's response. But I want to focus just for a moment on Elizabeth's response and John's response. Look with me in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So joy is going to overtake those whose God is the Lord. But second big idea for us this morning, seeing Jesus for who he is leads to real joy. Seeing Jesus for who he is, leads to real joy. Mary knew that she was carrying the son of God. She knew that the baby in her womb was the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. But when she greeted Elizabeth, who was carrying John the Baptist, John leapt in Elizabeth's womb, leapt. Notice in the first section in Isaiah, and now here, joy is hard to miss physically. Isaiah talked of singing and rejoicing. John leaps in her mother's womb. Elizabeth exclaims with a loud cry. When we are overtaken with joy, it's hard to keep quiet. Now, this is true of us. We're all different and respond differently. So I'm not saying that we ought to be someone that we're not. I'm not saying that we need to just merely perform. But the fact is, all of us in this room and all of us on this planet are physical and emotional creatures. I include this passage because it shows us something profound. That there's a response to seeing Jesus and seeing him as the Lord and his joy. But that needs to be explained a bit. Seeing Jesus leads to joy. Now, in one sense, none of us have seen Jesus, right? We're going to get there in 1 Peter. None of us have seen him because none of our eyes have perceived the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our eyes have not perceived his physical presence. He's not here in that sense. But in another sense, all of us have seen Jesus because all of us are here at this church and have heard the gospel. If we've spent any time in this church, I know you have seen Jesus. He's been put before you to behold. You've heard about him in your homes. You've studied about him in your equipping groups or in your table groups, or even I hope among friends, you've talked about him. But seeing Jesus according to others is frankly not what I'm talking about. That's not what leads to joy. John and Elizabeth saw Jesus for who he is. 
They say, they, they see him rather with eyes not of physical sight, but with eyes of faith. It's why Elizabeth can call Mary the mother of my Lord, because she knows Jesus is the Lord. She's seen it, not with physical eyes, but with faith. And this is real joy, not some fickle, weak, temperamental happiness that passes in and out of season. You can make a great grade on your final exam and think that you are on top of the world and somebody spills their lunch all over you and that happiness is gone, right? Like that's fickle happiness. That's fickle joy. That's weak joy. Plenty of people Look at Jesus to get happy because they think Jesus exists only to make them happy. So they'll go their own way for a bit, fall into some hardship and say, man, I really need to get it together. I need Jesus to help me. But that's not real joy. That's using Jesus as a tool, not beholding him as the son of God. Students, when we look at Jesus and see him for who he is, like John did in his mother's womb and like Elizabeth did when she heard Mary's voice, our hearts will then respond like John and Elizabeth. He is God incarnate. He is the Lord of all. He is the word. He is the redeemer, the prince of peace, the friend of sinners, the Messiah, the firstborn of the new creation. On and on we could go. And he is all that and more for us. So do you want real joy? Then you must make it the aim of your life to know the glory of God in the face of Of Jesus Christ. There is no lasting alternative, no substitute. The word word tells us that the substitutes of the world are like cisterns that are broken and cannot hold water. We think we're going to get all the water that we can get in these cisterns, in these jars, but they're broken and they're leaking and they can never do what you think they will do. And they will never do what they seem to claim that they can do. The idols of this world, the, temp- the, the temptations of this world will not lead to real joy. It might lead to fleeting happiness. Right? Why do people fall into sin so often? Because sin is fun. Because sin seems good, because sin feels nice, because sin elicits something in us, kind of like that Christmas present on Christmas morning. There's an automatic response to receiving the desires of our heart. But the problem is that our desires are wrong. And they will not lead to the joy that we need. So in the meantime, we live in the joy of the Lord, having seen Jesus by faith, given as a gift of the Spirit. Peter is going to give us some parting words that will serve as a conclusion for us. So find with me. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The promise of Isaiah, joy is going to overtake those whose God is the Lord. What we see in Luke from Mary and from Elizabeth and John is that when we see Jesus with eyes of faith, when we see him for who he is, then real joy will be Ours. And so as Christians who have seen Jesus, Peter is going to give us 
some encouragement of how those truths that we learn in those two texts might fit with today or tomorrow afternoon or next Friday. So let's start in verse three. Get some context and then we'll spend some time at the end. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in this gospel, Peter says, in Christ and in his work, we rejoice. That's the point of the first part of this passage. We rejoice, and yet we will experience hardship. We'll be grieved. We're going to walk through hard times. Even in our rejoicing, sorrows will come. Rejoicing in Jesus is not what makes us impervious to the circumstances of our world. We're still going to be affected. We're still going to be grieved We're still going to find hardship. Trials will still come. Why? Well, Peter tells us so that our faith may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in the meantime, Peter is encouraging you and me to believe. Third point for this morning, joy for the Christian is endless. It is invincible and it is hopeful. There will be things people, events in your life that have the potential to steal your joy. It could be the successes and opportunities of other people around you that you think you should have. It could be being overlooked. It could be someone's harsh words or unkind attitude or even hatred towards you. It could be a family member or a friend who whose lives just lead you to frustration. It could be a nagging feeling of loneliness or not measuring up. These trials and more are not intended by God to steal your joy in Him. That is not the point of the trials that you face. They are testing and proving your faith in the God of joy who delights in you and has promised to bring you into joy everlasting. Look at verse 8. Though we have not seen Jesus, not seen him with our eyes, we love him. We believe in him. And the right response of a heart that believes in him is to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. That's what I mean by endless. 
we can't exhaust the joy that Jesus gives us. It's inexpressible. As, as much as I can say, as much as I can rejoice, there's infinitely more to say. Our joy in Christ is endless. There's no end to the joy he gives. He, he never runs out of joy to give you. So we can rejoice in him now. We can rejoice in him then. No matter our circumstances, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what hardship has fallen on our family or fallen on your lap or fallen on your job or fallen in your relationships, you can rejoice in him. Second, joy in Christ is invincible. Nothing in creation, including fallen angels like Satan and his demons, nothing in creation has the power to actually take away your joy in Christ. Nothing. Now, we can, in weakness and sin, give things the power to take our joy away. We can give those trials and those things and those circumstances that power to quench the spirit who lives to make much of Jesus in our lives, who's cultivating the fruit of the spirit, including joy. But we don't have to. We can choose to rejoice no matter what. No matter what comes my way, my response as a believer can always be, can always be, Oh, I rejoice in the Lord. And third, joy in Christ is hopeful. Perhaps the joy that I have in Christ is covered in tears. But it looks to the future with confidence. We can have joy because joy itself has come to us. We can rejoice like Elizabeth because our joy is secure in the the one who has come, he has come. And until he comes again, let's delight ourselves in him. Let's recognize the gifts that he gives us that point us back to him. Let's see the trials and hardships in our life, not as thieves that seek to steal our joy, but what God intends for good. Let's remind ourselves and remind each other that if we are in Christ, our joy is endless. Our joy is invincible. And our joy is hopeful. Let's pray. And then we'll spend some time discussing this in our groups.